0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits, a fashionable portfolio of unique spirits, including bespoke gin, rum, and vodka, inspired by the rich cultural history and distinctive style of the Harlem Renaissance. Learn more at hhbespokespirits.com.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food.
0: My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials or like Project X.
2: Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds.
0: What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos because they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Although, the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago, so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype.
2: Listen to Meat in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
1: <laughs> Meet me in the kitchen What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our history.
2: Welcome to Queer the Table. Today's episode, for me at least, ended up being sort of an unexpected history lesson. I talked to Alia Volt, whose book Homebaked My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco came out earlier this year. The book tells the story of Alia's mom, who, as you might have guessed from the title, made pop brownies. She was a friendly, audacious, glamorous neighborhood drug dealer. But as the AIDS epidemic took hold of her city, and people started to realize that marijuana could alleviate some of the symptoms, her role changed. Here's Alia with
3: the whole story. So, my mom was had had recently come to San Francisco and was doing illustrations for children's books, and she was a little bit short on rent one day. So she asked a friend um, whose name was Cherie Mueller. She called herself the Rainbow Lady. If she had any (laughs) ideas and the rainbow lady had this little mobile bakery where she walked around with a basket and sold freshly home-baked muffins and cookies and things like that to tourists on Fisherman's Wharf. And the rainbow lady, uh, mostly did straight baked goods, but she carried a pouch of marijuana brownies over her shoulder. And she was trying (laughs) to save up money to move to a commune in Scotland So my mom started working with her, and eventually the Rainbow Lady made enough money to move move to Scotland and gave the business to my mom. The irony there is that my mom is a disaster in the kitchen. So she immediately had to rope other people into working with her, and it became a community project immediately because my mom had to find somebody else to bake. Right.
2: That's... (laughs) So amazing. And the bakery was out of your house too, right? So I imagine it was like lots of people all kind of coming over. And I just imagine like a, a giant chocolatey mess.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we lived uh, initially in this 4,000 square foot warehouse in the Mission District of San Francisco. It was this huge cavernous space. And the brownies all came out of a 1950s Wedgwood oven that was creaky as, as can be. I mean, it was an antique back then, but it was a workhorse. And so there was a a routine around it. My folks would get the cannabis from up North from Humboldt or Mendocino County, dry it, prepare it. My dad would grind it. And then eventually uh, a guy named Carmen Vigil, he became the baker. And so he would come over, On Thursday or Friday morning, he would bake a couple of days straight. And then his wife and a friend of hers were the rapettes. And the rapettes would sit at this big round kitchen table and they would wrap for hours and hours and hours on end, individually wrapping each of the brownies in cellophane. And Carmen and his wife had a kid. There was a third salesperson, Cheryl. She had a toddler and and me. So there were, you know, there were babies and toddlers around, and then the adults were all involved in this collective atmosphere. Um, it, it was definitely a scene. Wow. I
2: mean, in the context of Sticky Fingers, like you were kind of born into that world, right? The bakery started before you were born?
3: Exactly. I was born in 1977. At that point, Sticky Fingers was At its height, and they were distributing upward of 10,000 brownies per month throughout San Francisco. My mom is very hard worker. She's not the kind, she doesn't like to rest. And so she was back on the beat almost immediately. I think I was two months old when she first started taking me with her on brownie runs. First, like in a jerry carrier on her back and eventually in a stroller, which she would load with brownies. And kind of used (laughs) because the brownies were heavy. Um, And I have, I was obviously, I was an infant at that time. But I have these little flashes of memory um, from being out in the Castro. I mean, this is the 1970s Castro. So pre-AIDS, height of disco fever, Sylvester's walking around. Initially, Harvey Milk was there as well prior to his assassination. And just a really vibrant time in the in this mecca of, of LGBTQ+ plus diversity and activism. and um, you know, the the marijuana products were central to it in the sense that it was what drew all of these disparate parts of San Francisco culture together, it was a hub for many different subcultures. And I I feel really privileged to have grown up in that environment. I had so many options among the influences, so many lifestyle options to draw from.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to put it. What are your childhood memories of your mom? How do you picture her when you were like a young kid?
3: my mom is is very cool. You know, she's one of these very cool people. Um she's one of these people who draws other people together. I have a really clear image of her on um the barge. This is what we called her bed, like her queen. She usually had a queen or a king, and <laughs> it was the heart of the house and sort of a hangout. So Many of her customers became close family friends, and she would invite the people she trusted back to the barge to kick back and smoke a doobie and talk and hang out. And, you know, cannabis culture used to be very, very sociable. You wouldn't just have a quick, you know, efficient transaction with your dealer. You would hang out, right? And so this Mm -hmm. was really kind of the heart of our social world and the heart of the home. And I have this really clear image of her kicked back, you know, smoking a joint with a good friend. And I was always welcome to hang out. Um, I didn't smoke joints as a kid, but I I was welcome to hang (laughs) out with the adults and I often did. I think of her in that context a lot.
2: I guess how did you obviously you knew, and I wonder like how you thought about mm-hmm. your mom's work, or you know it wasn't like now it wasn't legal, and so I wonder like were you mm-hmm. nervous, were you embarrassed, were you afraid, were you proud you <laughs> thought it was like badass how how did you kind of relate to the work
3: actually more of the latter um so okay so my my parents never. Uh, hid the nature of their work from me. I don't actually remember a moment of learning that my parents had this outlaw business. It was highly illegal at the time. I mean, any, the, the, the sale of any amount of marijuana for any reason was a felony and possession of anything over an ounce was also a felony. And there were giant garbage bags of weed in the house at all times, um, so it was it was quite illegal what they were doing and my parents needed me to understand that so that I could protect them right i couldn't go to preschool and and be talking about my parents' work so they were very open with me about the fact that they were outlaws but as they presented it good outlaws the law itself was messed up and since the law was wrong it was righteous of them to break it and this was the the version That they presented to me. So I I grew up with the idea of like some of the normal right and wrong polls being reversed. I had a very strong moral compass, but it was different from the moral compass that other kids had.
2: Right. And this is like peak Reagan and Anita Bryant, you know, like really big California conservative anti drug figures in place, too.
3: Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, There was a very weird dichotomy when I was a kid, where on on the one hand, the Reagan era, just say no drug rhetoric was in full effect. So in grade school, there was the D.A.R.E. program. Police officers came around to elementary schools and gave lessons in how to resist peer pressure and how to recognize and report Dealers to authorities. So I was I was having this uh, message pumped into me at grade school. But at the same time, I would go with my mom on deliveries. And this was also the height of the AIDS epidemic. So our deliveries would take us into the homes of people who were dying horrible deaths
2: mm-hmm.
3: and experiencing so much pain. And there was no... Pharmaceutical solution until 1996, when protease inhibitors came out. There was no effective pharmaceutical response to HIV/AIDS, and people were just going through so much suffering. And cannabis helped ease some of that suffering. So I, I would see this very real, this very real example of what of what the magic brownies and cannabis in general meant to the AIDS HIV/AIDS population and then go to school and get this really intense anti-drug message. And the two things did not connect in any way. I mean, there may have been moments when I was I was nervous. Of course, I grew up knowing that my parents could get arrested and go to prison at any time. And there is obviously a lot of pressure in that. But I also believed them about their work being essentially righteous right well and, so, and saw it firsthand it yeah. like. so you knew i mean there was there was a point when i was older and aids was really harming people that i loved where it was it was unquestionable that we were in the right um you know earlier right. you know it really was about partying in the in the in the 70s and in the the early the early years yeah. of my childhood Even so, I believed their version of it. Um, But as, as I got older, I saw firsthand what their role had become. It changed over time. And yeah, there was no question after that.
2: It's time for a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by HH Bespoke Spirits, a fashionable portfolio of unique spirits including bespoke gin, rum, and vodka. The family behind the award-winning boutique and clothing brand Harlem Haberdashery has expanded to distill spirits inspired by the rich cultural history and distinctive style of the Harlem Renaissance. The black and family-owned HH Bespoke Spirits are available at bars, restaurants, and retailers across the United States. Learn more at HHBespokeSpirits.com
2: and follow them at hhbespokespirit. Before the break, Alia mentioned seeing her parents' role in the community change over time. I wanted to know more about what that transition was like.
3: So it was kind of gradual, and it also happened very early on in in the AIDS world. But um, my folks in... At the end of the 70s, my folks moved out of San Francisco up to Mendocino County, and my mom at that point was making monthly trips and down to San Francisco and staying in the Castro and selling to her longtime customers. And it was on one of those monthly trips, she was walking down Castro Street, and she saw the quite famous now... Um, gay cancer poster that had been handmade by Bobby Campbell. It was, you know, hanging in the window of Star Pharmacy in the heart of the Castro. And Campbell was a public health nurse, and he was one of the first people to be diagnosed with Kaposi sarcoma. So he photographed his lesions and, and homemade a poster to try and warn his community. And my mom saw that poster and thought, oh, that's weird, because she had just seen one of those little purple spots, on a friend's hand, yeah. and it happened i mean, it really went after the same community that my mom had been serving. Her route was through the castro and so she was just right in the heart of it, and she was already kind of in ensconced in this community and her i think she lost her first friend in April of nineteen eighty two and then it, you know, there were a couple of deaths that year, and then it was just an avalanche of, of death. Um, and by this point, the Sticky Fingers operation was much smaller. It was really just my mom coming down to the city, and I would sometimes come with her. Um, and I remember hanging out at the, at the motel, and people would, people would come over and visit. And you could see from one month to the next the physical transformations. You know, you'd have a a beautiful 30-year-old man one month, and the next month he looks 70 and is hunched over a walker. So, um, yeah, it was just a a terribly, terribly sad time. And it emerged, people noticed pretty early that cannabis was helpful with nausea and with appetite. Um, The wasting syndrome is one of the worst killers. And everyone knows you get the munchies, right? It was pretty obvious to try cannabis for that. Um, What is a little bit more disheartening, but that emerged, emerges if you research medical marijuana at all, is that the government um, was itself aware and had been aware since at least the early 70s that cannabis was helpful with nausea. It had already been used for chemotherapy related nausea right and so you know it wasn't it wasn't a complete mystery it's just that this was this was not the message being projected by the government obviously and it wasn't the message they wanted to project obviously
2: right and i i imagine they weren't interested in letting gay men onto those trials
3: (laughs) oh gosh no yeah
2: (laughs) right um can you tell me about those trips to the Castro? like I wonder if there are any trips that stick out in your mind or patients that uh, patients clients that stick out customers that stick out um, mm-hmm. when you think back to to those trips
3: so in in those days, I was little, so four, five, six, seven years old, and my awareness of it. Um, you know, kids kids are flexible, right? You absorb the reality that's given to you. So I, I, I was aware that some of my mom's friends were transforming. I was aware that some of them were getting sick. I'm sure it scared me to see some of the physical transformations. Later on, my mom and I moved back to the city in 1987. This was when I started helping her bake. And at that point i i was aware of people who i cared about dying and you know mm-hmm. i understood what aids was and i understood what it was doing to people i cared about and this was also the period when we would make house calls to people who were too sick to go out um wow. and it was a lot to it was a lot to take on as a kid you know there were certainly moments that were traumatic and that I, I remember in a very vi- vivid and painful way. But I also want to say about that, that I, I feel even now when I, when I look back on it, I feel also privileged to have seen the tenderness and compassion with which people cared for one another at that time. And yeah. the bravery of these young men facing such a brutal demise Um, but i I remember very vividly going into a home where there was a a young man in bed dying clearly dying on his last weeks and the man who's taking care of him his partner is also dying and has maybe a little more time and it just it, it was so it was so incredibly sad but it was also I, I was also very much impressed by the bravery and there, there's something beautiful in that, you know, in the love and the bravery and the compassion. Um, you know, I don't want to find a, I don't want to find a silver lining to the AIDS epidemic, but, um, but that stays with me as well.
2: Right. Can you talk about how you decided to start recording your mom's stories and memories of this time and then you know eventually decided to to turn that into a book,
3: so I started recording back in like two thousand and six and um how that came about is that my mom was she was going through some health issues, she was on chemotherapy for a year, and I had you know an awareness that i would if if I were to lose her, if the worst were to happen, I would wish that I had my favorite stories that she told in her own words. So I just started recording my favorite stories. Um, And Mm. somewhere in that, the stories brought up questions for me. And then some of the questions I would ask, she would say, oh, you should really talk to your godmother Barb about that. Or you should really talk to your dad about that. So I, I expanded the conversation and started interviewing other people and each person would turn me on to a couple more people. And I was so inspired by the culture pockets and types of activism that the people I interviewed were involved with, many of which weren't very well documented, but were still influential. And that got exciting for me. So I, I would go down these rabbit holes that maybe weren't directly connected to Sticky Fingers but I, I felt like I was, I was preserving um, a piece of the culture that was disappearing. And it's gone through many permutations since then. Mm-hmm. The, this final iteration that, that became Home Baked came about in the lead up to the 2016 election, which is when California voted on Proposition 64 that legalized adult use of cannabis recreationally. And in the lead up to that, it became pretty obvious that it was going to pass. And I was noticing and being frustrated by the erasure of AIDS activism from the conversation. That, that you know, they would talk about medical marijuana more in in terms of like the sanitized version of medical marijuana, where it's kids who have congenital epilepsy or cancer again.
2: Right. This kind of repeat almost of what was happening when they were like, yeah, we'll use this on chemo patients, but we're not going to give, you know, access to these studies. Right.
3: Th- that there are diseases that you blame the victim for and there are diseases that are more, that are more acceptable to talk about. And AIDS is an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable thing to, AIDS is an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's an un- uncomfortable time to remember, uh, no matter what your politics are around it, it, these are painful memories. But the the erasure felt frustrating to me. And AIDS, AIDS activism and AIDS in general was being erased, even as it was happened. So to see us come back to that in 2016, when we should be more enlightened about this, um, made me angry in a way that made me want to finish the book.
2: <laughs> right. and And I think it sounds you know, there's, there's a desire to widen the story of kind of this movement for medical marijuana. It's so like, I was in the Bay Area in 2016, around that time, I was in Oakland. And, you know, there was, there are all of these, like, delivery startups of like Uber for marijuana. And it just felt like this very novel thing. And it seems like you so much of your work is kind of expanding and saying like, wait, there are elders here and kind of paying respects to them. Does that feel like an accurate description?
3: Yeah, I do feel that there is a debt of remembrance and it just, it pains me to see history being erased and to see it being erased on my watch when I know that I have a, that I hold a piece of this history. I knew that I had a piece that nobody else had and that it was my responsibility to make sure that it was preserved and honored. Um yeah, the 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 commercialization, the commodify the commodification, the digitization of the mm-hmm. cannabis experience. It's unavoidable. I don't think it is um in and of itself bad or wrong, Um, but I think that it is worth being aware of the richness of cultural history surrounding cannabis so that we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak.
2: Right. It's it's almost kind of like, yes, there's been this long, 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 long push for legalization Mm -hmm. and it's here and that's great. And there are things that you lose, like yeah. even when you mention um, people hanging out with their dealers mm-hmm. and the social aspect. Like there, there are things to grieve in this big new world.
3: Yes, cannabis <laughs> Back before we called it cannabis business, <laughs> cannabis used to be a community experience. And when Dennis Perone started the first dispensaries. He initially envisioned the, 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 the first cannabis club as a clubhouse, you know, a place where people um, could come to consume their marijuana in a comfortable environment that was safe. And when he brought this back around during the AIDS era, it had to do with there being a place that people in ill health could come and not be embarrassed of their health. And experience community. So,
2: so he wasn't even really separating out like it was kind of AIDS patients were at the forefront of his mind rather than a subset of customers. Yeah, well,
3: Dennis was in. It was in the in the game from for a very long time. Um, he he had what was a forerunner to the modern dispensary, the big top marijuana supermarket he opened in 1974, before long before AIDS existed. Um, but Dennis is a gay man. And by the time the latest, well, when, when AIDS hit, really, he was at the forefront of the, the medical marijuana revolution and um, kind of became... The face of it. I would say Dennis is the person, the single person most responsible for legal, the legalization of marijuana in the United States. So it wasn't always about AIDS for him. But once AIDS hit, it became about AIDS. And Dennis lost his lover to AIDS and always said that Proposition 215 was written for his lover Jonathan, so that the Jonathans of the world could access their medicine. I would say that none of the access we have today would be possible without AIDS-related marijuana activism. It simply, simply, the conversation was not being had about medical marijuana. And it was the AIDS epidemic and, and the work of AIDS activists that changed that perception.
2: Okay, that's our show for today. If you want a much more in-depth version of this story, you should absolutely buy Alia's book. It's called Homebaked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. You can get it wherever books are sold, but preferably support your local Black-owned shop. There's a link to help you find it in the show notes. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo was designed by Natalie Uduella, and our theme song was written and performed by Denali Gillespie. You can find us on Instagram at QueerTheTable, and if you want to support the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Queer the Table is powered by Simplecast and is hosted on Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.